You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by Win, women and innovation. In each episode, inspiring female innovators share stories of succeeding against the odds in a male-driven industry. Their experiences come from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and innovation departments in Fortune 500 companies. I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, brand strategy consultant and global marketing lead at Win. When you talk to Kim Patel, current head of partnerships at Bubble, angel investor, investment scout at Lara Hippo, and previous director of corporate strategy advice, you'd think that she had 15 lifetimes through both the personal and professional experience that she has gained. Born to two Indian immigrants, Kim gamed her way through self-funding her undergraduate degree while working multiple jobs and accruing accolades such as Forbes 30 Under 30 and simultaneously heading operations at Envision Accelerator for the first virtual student-led, student-built accelerator, helping diverse founders build their companies. If you're wondering, she's doing all of this in addition to getting her MBA at Harvard and serving on the Wynn Advisory Council. Tune in to hear more about Kim's incredible trajectory of overcoming obstacles and coming out on top. Hi, Kim, and welcome to the Win Win Podcast. We are so happy to have you here today. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. So before we dive in, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, the general spiel. So (laughs) that that might take a while. Uh, So I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, My parents came over from India in like the 80s. So my family actually hasn't been here that long. But afterwards, I went to New York. I spent most of my time in New York City, went to NYU for undergrad, lived and worked in New York. I've actually been working since I was 14. So you'll notice that my tendency to always be on a job is uh, very rampant and throughout my life. At NYU, I was studying history, politics, and econ. I thought I was going to be a lawyer and, like, go on Capitol Hill and, like, save the world. And instead, I decided to become an investment banker and, I guess, in my own way, try to save the corporate world in in, in, in a different way. But um, that led me on a very different path uh, throughout my career. Uh, And so led me to work for media companies, work in venture, work for startups. So... uh, it's been kind of crazy. Uh, so actually, looking back, it's probably one of the better, best decisions I've made um, is to start there. It made me realize what I did and didn't want at a very early age. Uh, and I spend my time in between Chicago, New York, and Boston. My older sister lives in Chicago, and she just had her first kid, my new nephew, who I'm very excited about. And so I tend to go I spent a lot of time there when he was born and will be going back often. Um, and my family is in New Jersey and uh, my friends are all in New York and I'm in Boston right now because I'm in school. So so I live in between all of those places. <laughs> so for our listeners who don't know where you go to school, where are you currently studying? So I'm finishing up my MBA uh, in, in Cambridge uh, at Harvard. Cool, cool. So before you got there, when you were a student at NYU for your undergrad degree, you worked multiple jobs and self-funded your degree. So what was that like? Yeah, so I, it was hard, but it was very, it kind of, my my best skill in life, I realize now that I'm almost turning 30, is the ability to kind of game something um, pretty quickly and figure out how to make all the puzzle pieces fit in a super efficient manner. So I did that with my jobs, my jobs, plural, and classes. So, for example, 
I uh, knew that I couldn't afford taking on, I didn't want to take on more loans for housing and housing at NYU was very expensive because you're in Manhattan. And so like, you know, it would be like $15,000 for the year for like dorm housing there and for upperclassmen. So I decided to become an RA because you get free housing and free meal plan. So I knew that would like save me money on my loans. Um, you know, I did work study and an, and a paid internship because work study, I could do homework while I was at work study. And then the paid internship, I could just like make extra cash hourly. Um, so it was things like that where you had to just find ways. And, and, and the classes I took, I tried to take classes that counted towards both of my majors. That's how I was able to do a double major and a minor in four years um, plus working. So you talk about chaos being your comfort zone. Could you explain what that means to you? Yeah. So I think given some of the life events I've experienced, um, you know, I, ha- I have been working since I was 14. My first job was sh- shelving books in a library for like $5 and $5 an hour. Um, and I was helping my mom, like I was helping my mom pay bills. And so I think for me, this notion of like life being tough was not, new. And and to me, that was my normal. Right. And so my mom passed away when I was younger and like my, and I actually helped take care of my dad. So a lot of these personal things like seeped into the way that I live the rest of my life, of course, and hardship as we would put it is kind of what I know. And so therefore like things that are crazy or out of whack or just don't make sense or like isn't structured, doesn't scare me because I think I've just dealt with worse and like, it's like very hard to like instill fear in me. I think the only times now that I get scared is if, um, not of failing, but I think of taking on too much to the point where I'm going to disappoint somebody. Um, you know, there are certain people I just like don't want to disappoint in my life. And, and I, I sometimes think that that's probably what I'm most scared of, but like failure is not one of them. Right. So then as you experience all these hardships and difficulties that are your norm, I'm sure there are different hacks and mantras that you use to keep yourself going. So what keeps you going in these moments? Yeah, I would say very solid support system. So I've always told myself that, you know, I think when you're a kid, everybody tells you like, you're special, like you're this, you're that, whatever. I didn't really have a lot of that growing up. Like my mom didn't tell me I was like special or anything. She loved me, but that's not how um, South Asian parents tend to raise their children just culturally. And so growing up uh, in my teenage years, I realized what was special about my life was that there were people in my life that just believed in me or like supported me and had no reason to. Like they weren't related to me. They didn't owe me anything. They didn't know my parents. Like they were teachers. They were librarians. They were friends. They were friends' parents. You know, during school and university, it was it was a combination of folks in, in admissions or in financial aid or whatever. Like I, I always found help in every corner when I went to go look for it or, or I just asked. And so I think that's kind of been underlying in my life. And so things always turn out okay, I think. And I, I consider myself very lucky for that reason. Um, and I consider myself very lucky for being able to find help when I need it. And so how has that background and the adversity in your life shaped the career path that you've taken on so far? I I think one of the things I haven't done is plan. So I don't, I've never like, I thought I had a plan when I was in 18, 19 years old in college and I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to do this. I kind of just went with the wind is the way that I would think about it. Like all of the career decisions I had, they were not pre-planned. They kind of happened. They, an opportunity 
presented itself and the timing made sense. So perfect example of this was when I went as in investment banking, usually the typical path is that you keep going into finance. So people will go to private equity or he- or work at a hedge fund and then they'll go to business school and then they'll go back into finance. And that's like the typical path of a lot of my friends. Or you'd stay in investment banking and still go to business school. I left b- before finishing my two-year analyst program because I had already started working in investment banking my sophomore year of school. So I was really burned out by the time I hit full-time. And, and so I decided... Instead of trying to interview for like a big name private equity job, you know, I, the day that I was supposed to fly out for my final round interview at one of, at a firm, I decided to take a corporate job at NBC that would keep me in New York. And like, I just took it because I was like, I need to get out. So I, I took it, you know, eight months later, my boss and I weren't great together. Like we didn't really click and we both knew it. And so I was like, you know, this isn't the right place for me. It's too big of a company. What do I do? 24 years old. I feel like I've completely failed and fell on my face. And I was like, I did all the right things. And like, I hate this job and this job hates me. Like it just doesn't work. And a friend of mine ended up saying, Oh, I work at the Huffington Post. I'll put in a recommendation for you. Like come in an interview. And I didn't really know her. She was just somebody I went to school with. And she did me that favor. She's now one of my best friends. I'm going to be a bridesmaid in her wedding. But like, she did me that favor. And that kind of went from there. And so when I joined the Huffington Post, they were being acquired, their parent company was being acquired by Verizon, and my career completely changed. So my job changed within like the three weeks, I was coming in at one job. And then like the job I got the job that it changed to was like seven levels above the job that I was hired for. And it just kind of happened. And so it was like a rise to the occasion or like leave kind of situation. So I was forced to do that. And that's kind of been the way my career has gone since when I was at Vice for three years, I changed my role within the middle of it um, from, again, like something that was within one business unit to something that was leading across the whole company. And it's like, it's all about trying to make the best of every situation presented to you. Um, and I was able to jump around when people asked me why I got into VC, et cetera. I, I started working in VC while I was still in media, you know, like it was just parallel pathing it. I was interested in something. I tried it. Someone gave me an offer to try it. So I did. It's never scared me to like switch around. So I think, yeah, I'm again, like almost 30 and I've pivoted technically my career like three times successfully because of that. Right. And so obviously you talk about some of these circumstances and hard work is, of course, a major part of who you are and your story. So along the way, you've, you know, you've picked up accolades, Forbes 30 under 30. Have you set yourself benchmarks as you went along, even short term uh, benchmarks or has a different string guided your path? When I was still in finance, I think like for me, it was like, I need to make money. And the thing was, that didn't mean anything. There wasn't like a specific number because for me it was, I need to make enough money to like pay off my loans and to like pay my rent and to like buy groceries because that was what I needed. Like all during college, I was working so that I could feed myself. I wasn't working and also to buy drinks at the bar, but like I wasn't working because I just like wanted to get work experience. There was a survival aspect to it. Like I needed the money. When I graduated, I needed the financial security to feel comfortable, like living in New York by myself on my own and having no other funds to, to pull from except my own. And so, you know, that factored into my decision making. Once I started to be, once I was able to build that nest egg and I was able to do it because I went into finance first pretty quickly, I think for me, the benchmarks then became 
am I happy? Like, am I, am I fulfilled by what I'm doing? And if I'm not, then are there other ways that I can be fulfilled? And I can say that like when I was working at Vice, like my day job was not fulfilling me. It was one of the reasons why I decided to explore something else for at the time, which was like early stage venture and like understanding what that was. Um, and the reason why I say that is because around 24, 25, I got caught up in a lot of the, I need to be on Forbes and I need to do this and I need to do that. And I need to like be out there and have a brand and like all of this stuff. If you're chasing that just to chase it, people can see right through it and they will sooner or later. They may not see it now, but they will sooner or later. There are tons of people that we know and I'm not going to name names, but tons of people that we know that are like showing up in Fast Company or an anchor, like in all these magazines. And a lot of them, when you read their interviews, you can tell that they're there for themselves, not for the people they're helping, not for their clients, not for their brands that they work with, whatever the case, they're there for themselves. I know ne- I told myself I never wanted to be that person. And so I actually didn't, especially working in media, like didn't set those types of benchmarks for myself ever. And what I told myself was if you put enough good out there in the world and you work with people the way that you'd want to be worked with, that you would you like you would want to be treated, then it'll it'll kind of happen naturally. Um, and that's how I like interact with my founders too. When I'm doing advisory stuff and like when I'm doing fundraising help and taking random calls with founders for 30 minutes to like help them structure their deck or whatever the case is, it, it's just kind of like this underlying belief that like it's what goes around comes around. Awesome. So then talking a little bit about your role at Vice, you were the director of global corporate strategy at a very young age. Vice has had its share of scandals when it comes to sexual harassment, discrimination. Did you feel it at all when you were there? Was that something embedded in the culture? Discrimination was, yes, uh, part of the culture. Um, In terms of gender discrimination and racial discrimination, it was very much part of the culture. I, I mean, I because I was in this kind of in-between role where I got to interact with the folks in the newsroom and the folks in the, especially the digital newsroom and like the creators and the people working on the Snapchat team. And then also had to interact with the higher ups. I saw kind of what was happening on the ground. And, you know, there were like Slack channels for like the POC folks and some of the stuff they would talk about is like rampant. It happened to all of them all the time in the way that they were treated and the way that stories got doled out and their pay. I know I had my own, uh, salary issues that I constantly fought for in comparison to male colleagues that were also South Asian and white female colleagues. I was constantly going into a fight about my salary because I was severely underpaid. Understood. But then also at the same time, you've had an immense amount of responsibility for your age and of course, you know, taking on this role very early on. So did you have imposter syndrome when you were doing it or how did being in that role make you feel? Yeah, so I um, I think I had imposter syndrome when I was at AOL. Um, and that was because when I was at AOL, the responsibility given to me was like that level, that of an SVP. And I was like a manager <laughs> that, that was trying to become a director. But like, that's essentially, it, it was just a vast difference. And that is when I definitely felt like I was in over my head, but I just like asked for help. But I definitely did spend like, you know, 80 plus hours in the office every week. So it was, we were going through our second, our second merger. So like it was, it was a lot um, when we decided, when we were merging with Yahoo and 
that I felt I was scared. That was like, that was like something I was like very just like didn't know what to do. But I also realized that it was a result of like the circumstance, like people were leaving, executives were getting fired. People were trying to figure out like what the jobs are going to be. It was just a crazy, crazy time um, in terms of the integration. And then when I got to Vice, I had it initially. And kind of what I realized was here you had a company that what started by folks who actually had no business experience no business experience, no operations experience, never ran anything in their lives. And then now they're like leading the company. And so everyone around you is running around with their heads cut off. That was how the place operated. And so given the fact that I actually like had a finance background and knew understood structure and like just understood some things, I felt a little bit better. But the tough part was, was I was one of a few people who had that background in that building. And so it was very difficult to be able to get things through in the right way because of that reason. So it's hard to try to change things there. And so part of creating this new team that I was on as a director of uh, corporate strategy was like a part of that change. And then as a minority in that, in that company, what were some resources that you were looking for to help you? Well, the, so the pay discrimination issue came out after Vice dealt with its Me Too problem. So they were, you know, dedicated to making sure that everyone on a gender basis, like, was paid equally. I don't know what the results of that ended up being because it started was started in, like, 2018, and then I never saw the results of it. Uh, I guess that's a nice attempt. But I would say I found solace in other women and other women of color and other people of color in that, in that company. Like, those were the people that were my friends for a very specific reason. It was because we were all going through the same thing in every department, meaning this was, like, rampant. And the only reason I got through my job half the time was because of that. Sometimes I wish, like, I didn't work on the business side and I was like, can I just go work in the newsroom so I don't have to deal with this? Because it was easier for them to be able to just do their jobs and go home. You would have EPs and stuff be like, well, you know, why aren't we able to do this? Or why isn't this getting paid? Or like, why can't I provide this for my journalists? Or like, why can't I do that? And a lot of that dysfunction comes from us on the business side. And it's all because of like what's happening top down and culturally. So it impacted the way that those folks were able to do their jobs. That was the worst feeling for me because I believed in everything they were doing. I was a strong, strong believer in news and reporting in this country, as long as it's done, you know, the right way. It's it it kind of was like heartbreaking for me. The only reason I stayed in my job as long as I did is because I loved what they did and I loved being able to support them. So I wish I I guess like that management would have looked themselves in the mirror and realized like what the issues were instead of trying to hide them behind hiring more executives or like doing a bunch of restructures or whatever they did. So then today you are also an investment scout and an angel investor and head of operations at Envision, the first virtual accelerator for women and people of color who are in college or are recent graduates. So going off of our conversation, why is it important for you to diversify entrepreneurship and the venture world and business as a whole? I think a part of it stems from the fact that I wasn't able to do it as well when I was in media. So when I was in media and when I was at Vice, like one of the things I realized was like diversity in the newsroom is extremely important, especially because these are the folks that are telling other people's stories. And I will say like on the creative side, like on the creative and editorial side, like Vice was getting better at it. Right. And like we had some like amazing, amazing talent there. But I I was trying to expose 
younger communities of students, especially to get into journalism and production in New York, like to try to understand like what it meant to, to have this job, to be a designer, to, to, to do this, like work in media in that way, um, because it's really important uh, to keep it going. But I couldn't do it as well. And so I think I think a part of me was trying to like overcome what I saw as a failure on my part in another industry. And these were some ways to do that. I think for me too, I've been the only in the room multiple times. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I guess I'm like, I'm a, I'm a younger millennial slash wish sometimes wish I was a Gen Zer um, for, for various reasons. Uh, But like I was born in the nineties. So like, it's not like I've been around for a really long time. And it's like, I was the only in the room back in the eighties or seventies. It's like, I'm still like various times, the only in the room, the only person of color, the only woman, whatever. I think less and less it's the only woman, but it's still the only person of color. And it's sad. Like that's, you gotta be kidding me. Why is that the case? And it's not necessarily just a gender and race thing. It's a, it's diversity of background. I keep finding myself in rooms where everyone else around me has the same goddamn, excuse my French background. And I don't have that background. I see it in business school. I see it at work. I see, like, I see it at various places. I see it in, in investment meetings, like, and it's exhausting. The only time I find somebody who I can like have a diver- like a conversation with where our backgrounds are not remotely similar is probably another founder. Yeah, absolutely crazy. And the fact that this is happening now is part of the reason that we started this podcast. We want people to have the resources for that. So, you know, if somebody is starting out their career and they are facing some of these challenges, what is some advice that you give to them? Throughout your career, right? I think it's tough because when you're younger, you want to be able to choose a more structured, maybe like less risky path. So that may be going into a a more structured environment, whether that's consulting or working for a company, a large company or whatever. In In those environments, you will be asked to potentially hide parts of yourself. What I want people to understand is that's not normal. And the reason why that's happened and happening and happens all the time is because the culture and all those companies were all started by similar types of people, similar people running the companies, similar people starting the companies. And if you feel like you have to suppress certain sides of you or like people don't need to know certain things about your background or um, you don't feel like you can connect with, you know, your coworkers, I'd say don't work there longer than a year or two, like have an objective in mind. And if that objective is I needed this experience to be able to show the world that, you know, I have analytical capabilities or that I can do X, Y, and Z, or I can present or I can do sales or whatever. Fine. Get that, check the box and then leave. Do not stay in the, because what what will end up happening is you're going to think that's normal. And then seven years out, you're going to become a person you don't recognize anymore. And that I just, you know, and I've seen it play out in front of me, right? I'm, I'm out of school now, seven years. And so like out of undergrad and I've seen that happen with my own friends. Honestly, they're really boring people. (laughs) And it's sad because I'm like, oh, remember in college when we used to be like kind of fun, like together or like when we were 25 and you were still a little fun. And now like seven years later, you've stayed in the same industry and you just kind of, you know, were afraid to ever take a risk and like went after the money. I don't think you're really that happy and you're really boring now. I love the honesty. I'm here for it. Um, So, you know, now that you're a senior woman in the industry, what is some advice that you'd give to women that are in a more senior position like yourself? 
Um, so a lot of times I'm asking for advice. So if I'm giving somebody advice, that's a, don't, you take it with a grain of salt. But so folks, um, when you get to more senior positions, and I, I still think that I'm still working towards a senior, potentially what it means to be a senior person. But when you're, when you get there, you feel as if you can take less risk sometimes because you you don't want to lose anything. I mean, especially as a woman, like you don't want to be the woman in the room that's like, oh, we need to hire more women. Like it's like effing exhausting. It's just tiring. And I have felt that myself. I've been in positions where I'm like, oh, like I've sat on calls where I'm explaining the difference between a person of color, a black person and a minority and an underrepresented person. Like I'm sitting there like telling them the definition. They could Google it. But like, why, you know, why do I have to be the one that explains it? You, you don't want to be that in that position. When you find yourself in those positions, you know, you tell yourself, okay, if I educate them, maybe they'll get it, right? Maybe they'll like understand. It sucks. And so it's easier to just not ask. I guess my, my advice there is, is that if you can't change it internally yet because of that, because of those dynamics, then like do everything you can to like pound the table externally, right? Just do everything you can. I don't blame you if you are the only woman in that firm or the only woman in the room or the only woman partner and you're like, there should be another person that looks like me here. One thing I will say is like, if you get a junior woman, please help her and don't think that you need to like see her as a threat. I think that's the other thing. It's like in certain industries, finance being one of them, traditional finance not be seen necessarily. Well, actually, it depends. I've seen this happen out on the West Coast a lot, which is like West Coast VC, which is like, I'm the only female partner. I'm going to stay the only female partner. Like, that's it. Um, And in finance, banking, private equity, same thing. Like, you have a female partner at the head of a private equity firm or like a female MD at, at an investment bank it is really difficult to get another person that looks like them gender race wise, whatever next to them because they're a part of the problem. And so you have to really ask yourself, are you actually a part of the problem? And the answer most likely is yes. You know, switching gears a little bit, you are currently head of partnerships at bubble bubble enables anyone to design, develop and launch powerful web apps without writing code. So what about this product to you is innovative and why do you think it's accelerating innovation as a whole? The awesome thing about Bubble, so I'm not technical. I've never studied computer science day in my life. Never even wrote, wrote like HTML. Like I, I've built a square website probably and done some Excel models. I taught myself how to build on Bubble this week. I'm not an expert by any means, but I like built my own web app. And I think what that means, if it's, if I can do it, then I think anybody can do it. And it's like, kind of amazing. The way that I think about it is like not every problem is like a hundred million dollar problem, right? Not every problem is worth that much money, but there are tons of problems out there that can be solved with software. So why is it that the, there is only a small number of people in the world that can help you solve that, right? And so is there a way for us to be able to kind of essentially decrease the price of software development in the world, in this country, in a way that anybody can have access to solve their own problems, whether that's a business solution, whether like thinking about all of the all of the folks who were brick and mortar or like who were um, physical retailers during the pandemic, their ability to go on and start an e-commerce store. I mean, Shopify was very helpful in that. And so, you know, kudos to them and the work that they've done during the pandemic. But 
they also made a lot of money. They also could have gone into Bubble for a lot cheaper and just like built out at least an interface or an application that let people place orders pretty quickly. Um, you know, even if they were doing manual delivery, like the difference though, being between us and like a Shopify or a Webflow or a Square is that it's not just about building a website or a homepage or a landing page. You can literally rebuild like something with the functionality of Twitter or Yelp or Airbnb, like on bubble. That's how robust the product is. So it can be extremely simple or it can be extremely technical and no other product out there has that type of functionality. So if you're a student in high school or college and you're like, I want to build something, I didn't study CS and like, I don't feel like I'm not learning it. You can get on bubble and you can probably build, you can build a company and you can get funded. There are companies built on bubble that have gotten VC funding. And so, I don't know, a part of me thinks like it's like democratizing access to build. And I'm all about that. Right. And I'm all about like, if you're, if you want to do something, I want you to be able to do it. That's amazing. So before we end the podcast here today, I want to ask you a question about innovation. Where do you see yourself and your industry in a month from now, in a year from now, and 10 years from now? So in a month from now, I think I will still be learning Bubble, probably. (laughs) But the product's going to be becoming more robust, which I'm very excited about, and adding more functionality to it. In a year from now, I think it'll be somewhat normal for someone to go to an investor and say, hey, like, here's my product. Like, you know, will you cut me a check? Oh, by the way, it was built on a no-code platform called Bubble. Like, I think that'll actually become not as scary for investors. In a year, I will hopefully have graduated and still be at Bubble and building some dope partnerships with people to, like, get this product out there and get people building. And what was it? It was a year from now. and It was 10 years from now, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude, I have my 10 years from now, I have no idea. Like, honestly, I really hope I'm like somewhere in Italy, learning how to cook um, Italian food from like, an old Italian grandmother in a village. Um, That's like my dream. I've constantly looked for like apprenticeships um, in Italy. But like, this is not the time to do that. But that's like something I want to do down the line. So hopefully, maybe by that point, I'd taken a year off to do that. Putting that aside, I'd probably still be like taking founder calls and invest, <laughs> investing <laughs> either on, on behalf of a firm or, or my and, and or myself because I'm an angel investor. So like I um, it'll be some combination of that probably. And hopefully by that time, everyone knows how to build on Bubble because it's a visual programming language in itself. And maybe I would have launched a product about my food and, and recipes on Bubble. I'll have a working cooking app. <laughs> I love that. It sounds like you're going to be thriving. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on to the Win-Win Podcast. We are so lucky to get to learn from you today. No, thank you so much for having me. It's a great start to my Saturday. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Win-Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.